Nothing is less like a friendship than a love affair. Lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever about their friendship. Lovers are normally face to face, absorbed in each other. Friends side by side, absorbed in some common interest. Above all, eros, while it lasts, is necessarily between two only. But two, far from being the necessary number for friendship, is not even the best. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 13, The Four Loves, Chapter 3, Friendship, Part 1. Well, good morning, everyone, or good evening, whenever you're listening to this. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, David, Matt, and me, Andrew, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through The Four Loves, the book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. So, how's everybody doing? Well, I am back in Michigan. Uh, listeners, as you know, I was in Arizona the last couple of weeks, few weeks, and so it feels so good to be back in my own bed, my own car, my own routines. You know, I'm just a man of routine. And so that's, and then, uh, you know, I had something interesting happen. Do you guys ever have it where there's something in your life that constantly pops up that feels like God's way of constantly communicating with you? Some verse, some image, some thought. There's been, for me, the return of the prodigal son has been that yeah, in many different forms in my entire journey. And so my favorite book, Henry Nouwen, Return of the Prodigal Son, I love that Rembrandt painting on the front of it. And in my darkest moments, it seems to be God puts that in front of me. And I'm in confession the other day, last week, and I walk into the confessional in Arizona and I look to the left and it's the Return of the Prodigal Son Rembrandt painting. Right as I'm about to kneel. And I'm like, all right, God, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> so anyways, I always love when those happen because they are beautiful reminders of our Father's love. I feel like they come in moments when we question whether he loves us, or maybe this is just me speaking. And it's him saying, don't worry, I'm still here. I still love you. It's you that doesn't that aren't necessarily receiving it in this moment or are forgetting it or are doubting it. So that happened to me this past week. And I really smiled when I got into the confessional and I saw that. I'm like, I must be need to be here, which could be bad in its own right. But, you know, we'll forget about that part. <laughs> what about you, David? Well, for myself, I don't have a whole lot of personal updates. I have started reaching out in order to build a C.S. Lewis reading group here in La Crosse, Wisconsin. So if anyone's listening to this and you're local, it's going to be starting in the new year. Uh, I also do have a little bit of poetry. I came across this haiku earlier this week. Help me. I am trapped in a haiku factory. Save me before they... <laughs> <laughs> Well, as the resident poet, I'll say that that didn't quite scan. <laughs> but uh, inspired by yours, I have one here. Haikus are easy, but sometimes they don't make sense. Refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, a student of mine once uh, fobbed that off on me as his original haiku and then got an F on the assignment, of course, because, you know, you can't plagiarize refrigerator. <laughs> so. 
Well, as for me, I, uh, I continue here in Florida. I just turned in my last final. Of course, uh, there's no such thing as a last final. Um, I'm working on a, an article for Perichoresis, the Perichoresis Journal, about uh, Lewis and uh, autobiography until we have faces. So I'm still about five pages away from being done with that and one, one good hearty edit. Um, and I've heard back from David Baggett and Jerry Walls at HBU. They're doing a new edition, a third edition of C.S. Lewis as philosopher um, and have asked me to contribute a chapter about clarity and charity until we have faces. Um, David said, just do your thing. So I'm working on a bit for that and then am working on, uh, of course, my doctoral program. So we're going to do a paper on comparing Charles Williams' Uh, Place of the Lion with C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength for my Charles Williams course. So it was such a joy to be able to actually read the stuff that I that I really want to read. So um, things are are moving along apace. But David, you'll be happy. I went to the 4 and 20 pasty shop today <laughs> and bought myself a whole pork pie uh, and some sausage rolls. And then I also bought the makings for sausage rolls. So that's one of our Christmas traditions. Also bought uh, two six-packs of crumpets. So uh, Kristen's family is all from England, and so we have lots of goodies on on Christmas morning. So uh, getting all ready for that. Also, want to point out this week we heard from our one of our listeners, Carlotta, who pointed out that in the Four Loves in Chapter Three, uh, Lewis says affection is responsible for nine tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our natural lives. And of course, Orwell in the pre-write, the prequel to the Four Loves says that a love like that can grow to be nine-tenths hatred and still call itself love. So anytime you see a phrase like that, that's very often Lewis repeating an idea. <laughs> Matt just drank. Anyway, good good shout out, Carlotta. That was, uh, that was a great get. We didn't even get to the drink of the week before, uh, yeah. before I had to take a sip because Andrew drops it <laughs> till we have faces reference. Hey, you might as well just start pre-gaming all of that. <laughs> that's just all that's going to happen. So. I'll take five sips before we even start recording just to get, get myself caught up to the early ones. That's that's good. That's absolutely good. <laughs> Speaking of which, though, what are you drinking? Are you drinking a paper towel, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, I decided I feel like this is my Christmas week, and so I thought I got to open the Macallan 18. And as I was setting up my mic, I spilled the Macallan 18. And so uh, I was joking with Andrew. I think I have the most expensive paper towel here. <laughs> Thankfully, by the way, it was not the bottle. It was the glass. And so I lost about a single drink of McCallan 18. I did not lose half the bottle. Thank goodness. We call that $20 clumsy. That's probably what that was. <laughs> it's not to be sneezed at. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, David? Well, I'm drinking... One of Matt's brown bag specials. It's the <laughs> Glen Moray single malt. And I had a little bit of it when you mentioned Till We Have Faces. And I'm actually going to say, quite liking this one so far. <laughs> Woo! Every blind squirrel gets a nut once in a while. There you go. Well, one of our supporters sent us a, a lovely Christmas gift with which to, uh, to have some scotch. And so cheers to Bud um, for that. But I wasn't able to find smaller bottles of scotch, and I didn't want a whole bottle because I know I won't drink it in the next month. Um, so I went to uh, the liquor store, and I found a lovely uh, three-pack. They all didn't even have four of London Pride from Fuller's, so uh, one of my favorite uh, English beers. So 
We'll uh, we'll drink to Bud and everybody else. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, David, you didn't get a C. We tried ringing out, or I did, <laughs> from the paper towel. <laughs> Those are the same scotch. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> it looks so yes. bad. I will not be drinking the wrong out one. Well, where have we been and where are we going? Yes. So we've now done the first three chapters of The Four Loves. In the introduction, we were introduced to the concepts of nearness by likeness, nearness of approach, need love, and gift love. And we heard how loves become corrupted when they are elevated beyond their station. In the second chapter, we were introduced to appreciative love, and we talked a bit about love of nature and love of country. And finally, we did the third chapter, and we did that over several weeks, and we looked at the first of the four official loves, affection, or in Greek, storgi. And this is a love which is humble and it loves the familiar. It combines well with other natural loves. And while it's wonderful and can open our eyes to appreciate others, Jack reminds us not to mistake it for charity and that it too can be corrupted. The need-love element of affection can go wrong if we develop a sense of entitlement or if we misuse its informality or if we allow our desire for it to become ravenous. And the gift-love element of affection can likewise become twisted, encouraging us to keep others dependent upon us. And that was where we left things the last time we were looking at this book. Now, obviously, as we cover more and more material, my summaries necessarily have to become uh, higher and higher level. Uh, but do you guys have anything else that you want to add before we move on to the next chapter? I mean, I love, I love trite platitudes. And so, you know, love ceases to become God when it becomes... A demon. Love no. ceases to be a demon. A demon when it becomes when it a ceases to be a, a god. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Just always keep that at the forefront of our listeners' minds. That's all, because that that really tends to be a theme throughout all of this. So I think we're about ready for a hundred word summary. What about you? Yes. Here's my one hundred word summary for the first part of chapter four. Much like affection, we're going to be dividing this up and going over it over the course of the month. Lewis introduces friendship love, in Greek, philia. While it was lauded among the ancients, Jack says moderns mostly ignore friendship, either because of their lack of experience of it, or the absence of a biological imperative, or simply because of its exclusivity. Jack rejects the claim that friendship is really just disguised sexual attraction. He explains why philia is the least jealous of the loves, flourishing as the friend group grows. He ends the section by distinguishing between companionship and friendship, and also by examining the interaction between philia and eros. I'm very excited that last part you just mentioned, a distinction between companionship and friendship, how he builds on that for us to talk about how friendship is born out of companionship and love can be born out of friendship. I feel like in today's society where so many individuals are isolated with lack of community, there's so many conversations around how do we build that community? And so this this part really, Lewis actually provides a really good roadmap slash template that if you think about it, should guide a lot of your actions for developing both of those things. So that's a slow teaser, guys. Well, and Lewis is a man in constant relationship and he valued friendship um, highly. And so I think that he's a good person to write about relationship. And I just, I, I find that incredibly helpful. Um, also, at some point, maybe today we can, uh, or or next week, we could have the argument that Kristen and I were, were talking about in the car. Does friendship trump Storgi or does Storgi trump friendship? But 
we'll leave Trump Trumping and anything else out of it until after we um, what speak friend and enter the text, right? Melon. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have that. Uh, that's my doormat at home. So if you can say Melon, you can come on in and help yourself to a beer. <laughs> Well, the text begins today with Jack saying that in today's world, affection and eros often receive praise, but friendship doesn't. And he says, to the ancient, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. And to prove his point, he says that while all the great lovers of history, people like Tristan and Isolde, Antony and Cleopatra, they have their modern counterparts, the great friends of antiquity don't. And he says that the very way that modernity begrudgingly admits that a man needs a few friends makes it very clear that they don't hold it in very high esteem, and they actually mean something quite different from the philia, which Aristotle classified among the virtues, and that amicitia on which Cicero wrote a book. They regard it as something quite marginal, not the main course in life's banquet, a diversion, something that fills up the chinks of one's time. Do you guys think this is a fair assessment about friendship today? Yes, absolutely. First of all, as he, was, as he was listing those names when I read the 100 Great Ideas series, I read a book on human friendship, and it was from the ancients. And you, you really do read Seneca, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Aristotle, Socrates, and you just get this sense of this high value on friendship. And I, I don't know as much about modern literature, does it emphasize it enough or not, but I think there's a huge crisis of friendship in our modern times. And I actually, I believe that's why shows like Friends and How I Met Your Mother are so popular. Because people see those and they they desire to have that depth and frequency with their friends, but they really, let's be honest, they don't get that typically. And it's just one of the best blessings in the world to have that. Yeah, I'd also agree. I think that friendship is really devalued. It's also sexualized, as this chapter we'll talk about a bit. Partly it's devalued on our society because you can't monetize it. Keep in mind as well that Lewis had a very fractured and fragmented Storgi affection life. But Lewis had constant friends once he got to Oxford. Um, he started joining societies right and left. He started making really good friends in George Gordon's discussion class. He met Neville Coghill, um, had uh, Bruce McFarland. Uh, Tolkien originally was one of his second rank of friends. Owen Barfield and he would spend hours talking about poetry. And so he really dove into friendship. And while he wasn't really romantically all that satisfied, or in terms of family affection, I think uh, there were lots of gaps. But in terms of friendships, he had rich ones. And I think that's part of where the richness of this chapter comes from. I think a lot of this turns on how we define friend, because mm -hmm. there's quite a semantic range. Uh, we talk about Facebook friends. How many of your Facebook friends have you, say, had over to dinner? You might also talk about your friends at work, whereas they're really acquaintances, as well as your childhood friends who you see once every decade or so when you head back home or there's a high school reunion of some description. And this is what some of the discussion ahead is going to turn on. Well, and that's also why I picked the quote that I did. Um, this idea of friends standing shoulder to shoulder, looking at the same thing the same way. That's the defining characteristic of friendship. And if you have somebody that you can't shut up about, I don't care if it's the Beatles or quilting or whatever, NASCAR, um, whatever it is that you love, C.S. Lewis. Um, if it's the subject uh, that's the topic, that's, that's almost certainly a friendship. 
So Lewis has asserted that modernity ignores friendship, and he then goes on to offer some reasons why. And the first one is a lot of people ignore friendship. Modernity disparages it for the simple reason that very few people actually experience real friendship. And this is incredibly sad, but Lewis thinks that this is the case, and that this is only possible because friendship is the least natural of the loves. It's least instinctive, organic, and biological. And therefore, a good friendship isn't actually guaranteed. And we come to the line which you gave in a previous episode that without eros, none of us would have been begotten, kind of requires some romantic love. And without affection, none of us would have been reared. Uh, but we can live and we can breed without friendship. Biologically considered, there's no real need of it. And as a result of this, Lois suggests that friendship is not only rare, but it's often distrusted by those in authority because when people become friends, they draw away together, away from the pack. What do you guys make of these assertions? Do you think that few people experience friendship and this is why it's disparaged? Absolutely. It's like the statement we always use is for Notre Dame. Those who know, no explanation uh, is needed. Those who don't know, no explanation will suffice. And I think that applies to true friendship as well. When you've experienced it, you know, when you haven't, it's just hard to understand what it's truly like. And I've had people tell me my whole life how lucky I got to have found such an incredible friend in high school. And then there are like, that's a once in a lifetime friend you ever find. And then I found another one in college. And I was like, whoa. And then out in San Diego, I was like, whoa. And I've just been very blessed of, of you know talking multiple times a week with all of them and deepest, darkest secrets. Um, I can be 100% myself. I feel no shame, fully loved. And it's amazing the strength that you get from that, from those individuals. They... They fill you up every time you chat. You turn to them when you're feeling down. Life, you take on arrows of hurts and wounds from people and you go back to the water well. And it's just like, it's amazing what they are. And so, yes, I am very adamant with people. I've been doing this well before I knew Lewis. Don't force friendships, which we're actually going to get to later in this chapter, but just be yourself and allow and be really choosy and picky with your friendships. Really choosy and picky. It's this chapter that helped me understand my relationships and then be more purposeful about them because you can't force a friendship if fundamentally a friendship is about an interest. All of that intimacy happens later on after you have spent so much time talking about the things that you love. I remember I had a guy that I worked with and I didn't necessarily like him. And he was kind of a jerk and he would steal my tables and, you know, he was just, I, you know, I, I didn't much care for him. But then we were at a picnic, a company picnic one day, and he pulled out his guitar and started playing every single Beatles song. And I love the Beatles. And all of a sudden, our whole relationship shifted because we had something where we could stand shoulder to shoulder on and we both agreed that the Beatles were absolutely the best. And so I actually even began forgiving some of his shortcomings and looking at them as just kind of, you know, charming foibles instead of real grave offenses <laughs> because he was my friend. And if he loved the Beatles that much, he couldn't be all bad. And so that's, there's this kind of gravitational shift that happens and you can't force friendship because friendship is about this kind of deep-seated interest. Once you find that somebody loves the right things the, the, the right way, even if it's that that's the opposite way, um, then that kind of intimacy develops. But intimacy doesn't come quickly, I think, with friendships. I think the interest does. At least that's my experience. So the first reason for modernity's disparagement of friendship 
is that few people experience it. And one of the reasons that few people experience it is because, as we said, it's the least biological. And Lewis says that this is itself a reason why the ancients and the moderns had such a different view of friendship. Because right until the medieval time, there was a real sense in society of asceticism, that nature and instinct and emotion needed to be treated with a certain level of suspicion. And he says that friendship alone of all the loves seemed to raise you to the level of gods or angels. But then came Romanticism, and this is something that we've mentioned before, and that was all about embracing nature, exalting sentiment, and really feeling that emotion. And now it was friendship's turn to look suspect. And not only that, those who believe that humanity is merely a development and complication of animal life, those are going to be suspicious of any behaviours which don't reveal an animal origin, or don't actually generate any survival value. So that was another reason. And then he also talks about false equality. Um, this, he says that uh, friendship is less popular because of the democratic sentiment. And it dislikes the fact that if some people are my friends, then that means other people aren't. And somehow that's unfair. Uh, what do you make of those other two reasons? Uh, it's the least animal and biological and this false equality. I think that the democratic nature is a real clue. And again, uh, listeners, we're not talking about politics. If you think about democracy being, hey, we're all in Athens and we all are you know, men and free to vote, there's this sense that we are all equals. I think friendship allows us to be not equal and allows a hierarchy of relationship. And so while the idea that we're all equal, we're all Americans, we're all part of the human race, we're all believers, we're all this kind of believers, whatever. While there is certainly, that's the building block of Storgi. We all belong to this one thing. Friendship, you know, separates even from that crowd. And there is a kind of a sense of inequality. But I think that that's just such a gift because I am not everyone's cup of tea. But I am a few people's cup of tea, and that's a saving grace for me, you know, who spent many years single, and to have had rich, deep love that knew me well and loved the things that I loved, you know, that that was great to be able to separate from the crowd. And that's, I think, part of why there's kind of some resistance. I think it's an overestimation of the importance of Storgi. Well, and David and Andrew, I'm actually curious. I want to flip the question a little bit. Here he was talking about how we used to place emphasis in the past on what differentiated us from animals. And that almost like brought us more on the level of divine. And now today we place value on what makes us more like animals. We worship our natural instincts. In fact, we worship them to the extreme, which is the issue. What do you guys think led to this shift? Because this friendship that the example we're talking about is, is a symptom of that shift. What do you guys think about on a societal level and what really drove that shift and what it would take to bring it back? Well, Lewis had mentioned romanticism, and the thing that preceded romanticism was the Enlightenment. So I suppose you could trace the philosophical movements and trace it back to that. But even at the same time, I'm not 100% sure. And this is actually true for quite a lot of this chapter. I'm not entirely convinced that all of Lewis's arguments stand up. I'm not entirely sure that they are broadly true for everybody. Because I know some people that actually would see something as being animalistic in a negative fashion, the very thing that Lewis tells us not to do. Don't just assume because something's something that we share with the animals that it's therefore bad. Andrew, what do you reckon? 
I think that you're right to kind of start with the Enlightenment, but I think what happens is there's this exaltation of Storgi in the 19th century with sentimentalism. So it rises out of Romanticism, and we think about the old home and and the mother's love and this kind of it's it's this era that turns angels into little cherubs, right? This kind of sentimentalism, and yeah. Exactly. And capital S sentimentalism. And so if you, it's not just being sentimental, but if you look up sentimentalism as a literary movement and everything else, that's part of what's happening. And sentimentalism really exalts the family life, the home life. Um, there's no place like home is that kind of sentiment to that. And the sexual urge is really repressed. And that's why you have this Victorianism right? Really kind of dressing everything down and, and hiding that. And then all of those restraints get thrown off in the early 20th century. And so if the 19th century is this exaltation to the skies of the godlike nature of Storgi, that Storgi turns into a demon. And then what you have in the 20th century, and there's no sign of it slowing down in the 21st, is this exaltation of eros, of lust, of physical desire, of sexuality. And, you know, it's We've got a great metaphor coming up about Eros in, in that chapter, uh, and I'll wait until we get there, although I always bring it up. Um, and part of that is the commercialization. So when you've got capitalism going on, capitalism can make money off of sexuality, and so you have this overweening expression of sexuality all the time, where even in our society, and I want to tread carefully here, uh, sexuality, one's sexuality is equated with a person's identity. Well, that's a revolutionary in the history of thought. And so what you have is these kind of these these two eras that exult to the point of becoming demons, both Storgi and 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 Eros. You never ever have this exaltation of friendship. And I think again, I mean I made the point earlier, but I think part of that is because you can't make money off of it. I think you're on to something there. There was a famous investor that said I won't invest in any company that doesn't somehow overlap with the seven vices or seven deadly sins because capitalism wants to make money. And what's the best way to exploit our instincts, the things that are natural to us and somewhat hard to keep in check. You know, the whole point of Christianity, not the whole point, a strong statement, a point of Christianity is to keep our natural instincts in check. As Chesterton says, uh, Christianity saved paganism from itself. It told it, it tells your desires to go to this point, but not any further. Where capitalism wants to push you over that line and get you into the addictive state, eat the junk food, the sexual lust to the extreme, drunkenness to the extreme. That's what it wants. I didn't think about that. I like that point, Andrew. Well, and that leads right to Lewis's quote that he was a converted pagan in a land of apostate Puritans. So the Puritans were way too precious about the sexual instinct. The pagans indulged it and and embraced it, but Lewis was a converted pagan, and so he knew how to set limits on on the loves. You're also, I think, right about it being those are the two more natural loves, and it, they appeal to to us on a really kind of basic level, a primal level, even. I don't know what what what's your take on all of this, David? No, I think that seems like a, a reasonable theory. But it's not so much the how we got here. Lewis now cares about how do we get back because he regards the ancient opinion as the right one. And so he says he's going to devote this entire chapter to rehabilitating philia for us. David's listening to Andrew and I talk for him. He's like, all right, we got to get moving. And so when Andrew throws it back to David, David wittily within five words transitions to the next one. I was impressed, David. It made me chuckle. 
I did judo for years. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the idea of rehabilitation is an important one. Lewis's first published work of essays, collection of essays, was called Rehabilitations. Ironically, it's the only of his books, I believe, uh, that is not in print anymore. If the cry of the moderns, like Ezra Pound, was make it new, make it new, Lewis and Tolkien knew that you couldn't make anything original and new, but their cry was to renew it. Tolkien famously said that his job was to kindle a new light in the world, or what is much the same, to rekindle an old light. That's what Lewis is doing, too. He is trying to rehabilitate this love that's been passed by, that's valued in classical literature, which is his training, but also has formed the most reliable love of Lewis's in his whole life. And not to spill too much, but he wouldn't have gotten married to Joy Davidman had she not been his friend first. Well, in order to perform this rehabilitation of Philia, Jack says he's first of all got to do some demolition. He says, it has actually become necessary in our time to rebut the theory that every firm and serious friendship is really homosexual. Now, regardless of however any listener might feel with regards to homosexuality, I think we've all got to admit that the concept of friendship, if it's going to be saved, has to be distinguished. And so rather than praising or dispraising, we've got to define and describe first of all. And Jack says that the word really is significant in the assertion that he hears that every firm and serious friendship is really homosexual. And it's significant because to make the claim that every friendship is consciously homosexual is obviously false. And so he says that those who want to discredit friendship uh, have to say that although it's not explicit or conscious is actually really homosexuality. And the great thing about this line of argumentation is it can't ever be proved and it can't ever be refuted. It's rather like a conspiracy theory where the lack of evidence becomes evidence. Or as Lewis says it here, he says, the absence of smoke proves that the fire is very carefully hidden. <laughs> I was genuinely thinking of modern day conspiracy theories at that point. I loved his... Uh his statement, if, if, if there were an invisible cat in the chair, the chair would look empty, but the chair does look empty. Therefore, there is an invisible cat. And I was like, man, this sounds like so many modern arguments today. The logic is flawless. <laughs> exactly. It's true. So is the cat. Uh, you see this actually in many places. Um, you see it in the friendship of David and Jonathan in the Bible. And I've seen a lot of literary criticism that kind of gloms onto that and explores, if not the homosexuality, but the homoeroticism of male-to-male friendship. And there's certainly some smoke there amongst the ancients and, and in the classics. But this kind of qualifying friendship as between the same genders as necessarily homosexual is just doing exactly what I was saying. It's spilling over the boundaries of it, and it doesn't really have necessarily anything to do with sex. I think that once again, we get these people who haven't necessarily experienced deep friendship and must sexualize everything, which is kind of the spirit of our age. That's part of why Lewis, in his essay on the reading of old books, suggests that we should wash out our mouth with an old book for every new book that we read <laughs> to kind of find that tonic and find ages when it wasn't always like that. Um, and so there is something different that could be happening. And his rejoinder here, it really is stinging. He says, those who cannot conceive of friendship as substantive love, but only as a disguise or elaboration of eros, betray the fact that they have never had a friend. So before we talk about the differences between philia and eros, what do you guys make of this argument so far? 
I guess the the only comment I'd make is I can't put myself necessarily in his shoes of what it was like in those t- that time period. I've never heard that today. I don't hear a lot of people equating male friendship or uh, female friendship between each other of the same sex as homosexual. Um, that just and maybe it's the circles I around. Well, if not homosexual, homoerotic, and that happens all the time in literary studies. Um, anytime uh, you have same gender relationships, there's this, this this sense that that there must be some kind of sexual tension. It goes back to what we were talking about before. This is that same passage too, um, where Lamb says that if three friends, uh, A, B, and C, if A should die, then B loses not only A but A's part in C. Um, it's like if we had this podcast and then David walked out of the room. We could never see that particularly look of David you know, on David's face when you and I do one of our things. And it has one of the tenderest lines. <laughs> he popped his head back. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners, David actually did walk out of the room, so we've been vamping um, a bit. But it actually has one of the tenderest lines in all of Lewis. Um, he says, now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline or Charles-like joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. And of course, he's talking here about Charles Williams and John Ronald Rule Tolkien. And so he says, now that Charles is dead, I have less of Ronald. And so this idea, and that's part of why I included the quote at the front, three friends can operate, four friends are even better, five is a great number for friends, because we can take the mickey out of each other, um, and we can we can tease each other, and it kind of grows exponentially. That's not something that takes place when romantic love is, is involved. And I think it's something, I, I don't know, I think that probably happens in Agape, or I'm sorry, in Storgi as well. But um, I don't know if it necessarily happens in Eros. I think you pretty much covered there what Lewis says about the difference between philia and Eros. Uh, The cardinality, that friendship can admit many more people, and it only gets better the more you add. I actually really love the line he quotes from Shelley. True love in this differs from gold and clay. That to divide is not to take away. Mm. So you've got that cardinality. You've also mentioned the focus. The lovers are face-to-face, but friends are side-by-side looking at something in common, some common interest. And the one you didn't mention is also language. He says that lovers are always talking about their love, but friends don't really do that about their friendship. They're, they're, They're too engrossed in this third thing. And here's where I would probably um, probably disagree with Lewis or at least argue with him. Uh, yeah, I know. Now, now listeners should take a drink. <laughs> if you're abstaining for Lent, you should take a drink every time I disagree with Lewis. Everyone listen up right now. This is big. <laughs> I think that Lewis's friends hardly ever talked about their friendship, although there's a beautiful poem that Lewis writes to Charles Williams. And he's talking about the effect of Williams's death. So he's writing to Williams after Williams died. And he's talking about the effect of Williams's death And he said, is this the chill of the ending of life or is this the chill before spring? He said, that's a great question, whether this chill I feel at your death is new beginning or the waning of the world waning, he calls it. And he said, the only person, though, that I could talk to about this distinction would be you. 
which means that he couldn't talk to Tolkien about it. He couldn't talk to Warney about it. And so there's this, this kind of poignant loneliness. But I think that friends today, male friends, are, I think, a much more a physically and verbally expressive with, with one another. Mm. Um, and I think that relationship is probably advanced in the 60 years since this book was, um, was written 60, 70 years, um, whatever. And so I'm not sure if I would say that friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. I think the Inklings hardly ever talked about their friendship. <laughs> and Brits hardly ever talked about that necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think that that's, that's being from the UK, David? I do. I do. I think there are quite a few things in this chapter, while not exclusively true for men or people raised in Great Britain, I think they are much more common. And also for the era, as you pointed out. But I want to get on to the next section because this is where Jack makes a distinction between friendship and something which he says is often mistaken for friendship. And he calls this the Matrix of Friendship. And funnily enough, the new Matrix movie was released just this week. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> <laughs> but what does he mean by this Matrix of Friendship? He explains that historically men had to cooperate with each other in order to survive. They would get together to plan a hunt or a battle, and afterwards they would discuss it. And he says, bound together by shared skill, shared dangers and hardships, esoteric jokes, away from the women and the children. And he notes that women no doubt had their own rituals and common skills and toils and triumphs. But he says, I'm not a woman, so can't comment. And he just moves on. And the point that he wants to make is that these shared skills, experiences, and that the time that's spent together, it's only the matrix of friendship. He says it's often called friendship, and many people, when they speak of their friends, only mean their companions. And I think that's the key word here. He's talking about companionship versus friendship. And he says this doesn't make it bad, just different. We don't disparage silver by distinguishing it from gold. And while earlier he said that society doesn't need friendship, they definitely need companionship. So what do you make about this distinction between friendship and companionship? This is great. And there's this one passage I really want to get to because I think it's such a great line. Um, he says, we enjoyed one another's society greatly. We braves, we hunters, all bound together by shared skill, shared dangers and hardship, esoteric jokes away from the women and children. As some wag has said, Paleolithic man may or may not have had a club on his shoulder, but he certainly had a club of the other sort, right? <laughs> this group where they would go and talk about the stuff. Um, and that's certainly what Lewis experienced in the common rooms. That was part of his experience where he had the people of his same type kind of going and talking about the stuff. But they're still in that talk in the common room. And common, I think, is your sign of, of, of story. Perhaps somebody's comment would make a difference to you and show that they really love the kinds of things that you loved. So Lewis had lots of common room experience, lots of clubs, but then he found a few people like Barfield who really, really loved poetry. And they would go off together so as not to be rude to talk about poetry. And this is, it's kind of like I used a couple of weeks ago, I think, the mission trip um, analogy, where you go on a mission trip and you have your shame or, a, or a, a camp or whatever, and you have your kind of inside jokes that you and the 20 other people all share and your inside experiences. But if two or three of those people kept going off and talking about something else, no matter what it was, um, Japanese ar architecture, I don't care. 
Even in that group that has this kind of shared society, two or three will find a deeper sense of shared interest in something in particular, and that's what Lewis is describing as friends and not companions. You're companions because you're all on the same bus together. You're friends because you're listening, you're sharing the same headphones, listening to the same music, and maybe that's a better modern modern analogy. Yeah, and I liked that he. The couple things that came to my mind with that was work colleagues today. I almost feel like we talk about work colleagues in the companionship sense, like, oh, I have so many, I'm really close to my work colleagues. And I think that's that's the similar vein. But then, like you said, you can separate off into your own little subgroup based on different interests outside of work. And he also gave a ton of different examples of what can cause that companionship. And he said one could be common faith, common religion. And I think of my time at St. Bridget's in San Diego, phenomenal church, huge young adult community, and probably 100 people coming together every Wednesday night. There's only maybe two, three, or four that I became super close with, even though we all were coming together around a similar faith, it took more to go really deep with certain people. But there was companionship with 20, 30 people and all of this wonderful thing but it takes something uh, different to go a little bit deeper. And so I really liked his distinction. I think it's spot on. And there's the classic line. I'm sure everybody here has heard it quoted. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. And Jack says that this is a rare experience, but when it happens, friendship is born. <laughs> One of my buddies in San Diego at the, the St. Bridges Church, I feel like our what you two was, wait, what? We're both 30 and single? You two? I thought I was the only one. <laughs> but that's storgy. That's demographic. If you like the same things, though, if you like the same show, um, or, you know, I've got a friend who has got great and broad musical taste, but she loves boy bands. And if somebody else came along who also loved boy bands, you know, that would that would set them apart. I love boy bands. I was told I should be a part of a boy band. You still should be part of a boy band. You've got the look. <laughs> He's got the I, look. I thought I was going to get called up to One Direction when Zane left, but they never gave me the call. And I, I feel like it's because I don't have enough tattoos. I don't know, though. I love One Dimension. That's uh, They're fantastic. This What You Two starts... <laughs> <laughs> and that is an example of What You Two, I Thought I Was the Only One. <laughs> David's thinking that right now. <laughs> it, uh, it started, I think one of Lewis's first experiences with it was Arthur Greaves, and he was a neighbor across the way, and Lewis was encouraged to go visit him because he was sick. They didn't really know each other, but they found the same book at the bedside, The Miss of the Norseman. And Lewis said, you like that too? And Arthur's like, oh, you like that too? And in an instant, he said, we were shoulder to shoulder looking, pouring over the pages of the book. And that's the sign of friendship is you really like the same thing. Um, my, uh, the family I'm staying with, they're all big um, Tampa Bay sports fans. And so if I started talking about the Lightning or if I started talking about the Tampa Bay Bucks, man, I would add the, the Tampa, Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Man, I would have them. And some of the friendship that I get with the the men in my family who are sports fans is I tease them like this year the Astros went to the World Series and the Tampa Bay Devil Rays did not. The Rays did not go to the series. And so that's a second friend. Even though they like the Rays and I like the Astros, we both agree that sports are important. 
baseball's important, right? And we both agree that cheering for your team is a good thing. And so that kind of thing is the essence of friendship. You like the same thing the same way. And for Lewis, that was Owen Barfield. He also thought the same things were important, but he had a very different point of view. He writes about it in Surprised by Joy. Jack says he's not so much the alter ego as the anti-self. Of course he shares your interests, otherwise he would not become your friend at all. But he has approached them all at a different angle. He has read all the right books, but has got the wrong thing out of every one. <laughs> Do you imagine coming across, becoming friends with someone, you guys have read all the same stuff and you have opposite worldviews and your, your statement to them is, you just got all the wrong things out of them. I had this experience as a teacher. Um, and I was a big NASCAR Jeff Gordon fan. And one of my students was a big NASCAR Tony Stewart fan. And Jeff Gordon was kind of the golden boy, the good guy. And Tony Stewart was kind of the bad boy. And man, we would go after each other, the student and I. But everybody else in class felt left out because they didn't know that NASCAR was awesome. Right? And so even though she liked the wrong driver... We both still agreed on the importance of NASCAR. And this can apply to any kind of interest. You know, if the Beatles or the Stones is an argument, as long as you both agree that classic rock is the best, you know, or something like that. Uh, you know, and it's what it's the experience David had arguing about Lewis versus Tolkien. <laughs> exactly. They're both important. But who is the most important? I, I thought there <laughs> you were going to talk about a friend who had an opposite opinion on NASCAR that they should just simply drive counterclockwise. <laughs> Or is, it, or is it clockwise? Which, whichever way. Anyway, it's it's the four left turn circuit. <laughs> left turn. There you go. I also I, I also thought David, you were about to bring up when Andrew was giving that example. It's like two people loving Lewis, but one just completely getting wrong his best book. Exactly. Sad. So sad. Well, and we're still friends because well, and <laughs> and and granted, I mean, once you all are mature enough, you will you will understand. Um, there's this marvelous video, and maybe we can post it. See, friendship can survive condescension and everything. Sorry, Andrew, carry on. <laughs> yes, yes, it, I, can, I, I can survive your condescension. Absolutely. Do it every week. <laughs> this, is like the, this is like the affection part. I feel like we just creeped into the affection. Uh -huh. exactly. I love it. I love it. There's a great video out there that's, uh, where they've asked like hundreds of celebrities and musicians, Paul or John, Lennon or McCartney, right? And everybody agrees that the Beatles are monumentally important. Who are these Paul people? John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Yeah, you're going to have to give me a little context. The Beatles. The Beatles? I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, there's a, there's a part of friendship that I can't share with Matt. <laughs> so, but, um, but that's, I, I think, a perfect example of that, that kind of thing. Well, before we get to the next section, there's one point that Lois makes, and that's that those who seek friendship for friendship they never find it because friendship requires that you seek something else. When you seek that something else, then you find friendship. So many times we try to force friendship and romantic love. And we can spend so much time trying to think through what do we need to do? Who do we need to become? Where do we need to go? And even I need to get some new interest just to be able to make friends. That is not the way to approach it. If we think of what is the definition of friendship or what brings them together, it's they see they're side by side over similar interests. And I would actually potentially argue, you guys could push back, that it the more it gets closer to seeing the same truth, I actually, in my experience, the friendship has gotten deeper and deeper. Um, if that's the thing that really aligns you. 
in, until you figure out what your interests are, it becomes quite tough to find the friendships. I, I was going to say, what do you want to do when you go home on your own? Just go do those things, those activities, and you'll come across people who like those. And that's how you'll find your friendships. Same for romantic love. Somebody who cared passionately about atheism and did not believe that the resurrection took place and could argue about that would be closer to being a friend than somebody who didn't care about religion at all. Hmm. And so maybe maybe the better thing to phrase there would be, because I agree with you now that you say that, and I like that you brought that up, would be they're still seeking truth, but they just, because I, I, you're exactly right. I can't actually be around people who just don't care one bit one way or the other. I like someone seeking it genuinely and passionately. It's not do we agree on our approach to truth, but do we agree that the questions are important? Yes. Right? The questions about truth are important, even if the answers are different. And in some ways, I want somebody who has different answers. I mean, that's part of uh, part of why I enjoy our debate about, about the great divorce, because I respect the two of you so much. I'm like, have I underestimated that? Could that possibly be its be be the best book? <laughs> No, I mean I've had those I've had those thoughts, <laughs> and I imagine that you all have probably given more thought to till we have faces than you would have had we all not been friends. Exactly, we need fresh ammunition <laughs> and another drink, both of you. <laughs> yes, but I was laughing because it, you were kind of looking up in the skies. You're doing this. You weren't looking at the camera. And David's nodding his head up and down, <laughs> big time, <laughs> as you're saying that. Like, yes, Andrew, you do need to rethink this. I have. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Tempus Fugit, and we've got one more section to talk about. In the final part of today's text, Lewis speaks about friendship between the sexes. And he says, When the two people who thus discover that they have the same secret road are of different sexes, the friendship which arises between them will very easily pass, may even pass in the first half hour, into erotic love. Indeed, unless they are physically repulsive to each other, or unless one or both already loves elsewhere, it is almost certain to do so sooner or later. Yay! One of my favorite quotes of all of that, and you can insert Jack and Joy here. Mm -hmm. This is him exactly describing his relationship. And she fell in love with him much earlier, I think, than he did. But that's exactly what happened to them. I was going to say, for him, it was much later. For her, it was sooner. Probably not till 57. She started writing him love poetry as early as 49. I was about to say, for her, it was a half hour. For him, it was a half decade. <laughs> that's exactly right. Not only can philia lead to eros, but the opposite is also true. Eros can lead to philia, and it's wonderful and enriching of that love. And the fact that someone can be both a friend and a lover, he says it more clearly distinguishes the philia from eros. Such as, for example, whether that love can be shared with more people. Philia, yes. Eros, no. <laughs> That's part of why when um, two people who have been dating say, oh, well, can we still be friends? Um, they almost almost certainly never were. If they were dating and, they, and, and then that dating relationship fell apart, if they shared the same interest in cooking Italian food, that could still become a friendship. But more often than not, when somebody says at the end of a romantic relationship, can we still be friends? They mean, I don't want to let you go yet. And the, mm. the boundaries of that relationship are erotic boundaries. They are not filial boundaries. And so if two people, and this happens at the beginning too, when you see two people who are kind of clicking up and you're like, hey, are you guys dating? Oh no, we're just friends. Just by using the word just shows that they demean and do not value the value of friendship. 
And also, if they say, we're just friends, I say, great. What great, deep passion and shared interest do you have? Oh, well, we just like having out, hanging out. That's not a friendship. That's a scam. <laughs> and somebody's not sure about it yet. <laughs> yes, it sounds like people not certain about what kind of love they actually do have. I remember, I think it was on my third date with Marie, I said something to the effect of when she was asking sort of what was happening next. And I said, I'm just going to be making you my best friend over the next couple of months. Because I was already attracted mm. to her and I had already known that we had enough in common. She had read The Great Divorce in anticipation of our first date. Some common interest <laughs> right there. Uh, and so in our dating, there was a period of maturation of our relationship where it was specifically Philia which was growing. Because Eros had already improved. <laughs> but in the meantime, I wanted to build some more of our friendship. Because as I said in the last episode, much of what makes up our marriage isn't actually Eros. Earlier I was speaking about Storge, but also much of it is also Philia. I do love the fact that I uh, I knew you right before you started to date Marie and we were just starting all this Lewis stuff. And so I remember you you were driving me. I think we were getting burritos after recording off of the the ironing board as usual. And you were telling me about the date with the the great divorce book. And I'm like, ooh, this is good. This is interesting. Well, and I'll throw y'all a bone here. Uh, the rector at my sending parish said, uh, when we sat down to, to meet for the first time, we were talking about Lewis. He said, I have to admit that in college, I wouldn't date a woman unless she liked the great divorce. And so I would give her a copy. <laughs> and if she got through it and she enjoyed it, then the date could continue. And his wife certainly liked it. And that's part of why he married her. So it's a good starter kit. <laughs> well, that's pretty much the end of this section. Lewis just ends with this thought experiment to prove how important philia is. Because he asks us to imagine a couple who have been friends and lovers. And they're given the option. They can now only keep one. They could remain friends or they could remain just lovers and they get rid of the other one. Which would they choose? I don't know. I want them. I'm greedy. I want them both. <laughs> I want them both. And that's part of why, you know, it's, that's one of the many reasons I love my wife is that uh, we share an interest and ability as speakers and writers. And when we're talking about those things, especially at a conference or when, you know, editing each other's work, we're not operating as lovers. We're operating as friends and we understand and know that language. Um, and so I don't know. I wouldn't trade my wife for anything, but also love, uh, friendship love has been the most sustaining love of my life. And I feel incredibly fortunate that I have somebody who uh, is not only my romantic partner, but loves Lewis and loves so many of the things that I love as well. And the very fact that you struggle with that entire question, I think just proves how important friendship is, how important philia is to those who, at the beginning of the chapter, he said, didn't think much of it or would even deny that it was a love at all. Before we close, I just have been mindful of a sonnet that Shakespeare wrote. We started with haiku. We'll, we'll go to something just a little loftier if we can fit it in. Um, and it reminds me of my dear friend J Doug Jackson and so many others, especially in those long years where friendship was the only and sustaining love uh, for me. And this is Shakespeare's Sonnet 29. And while we may not make a thing of it here on Pints with Jack, I thought it especially appropriate. Um, and uh, we'll think about this again where Lewis talks about the golden sessions uh, with his friends. This is what Shakespeare says. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state. 
and trouble death heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like one more which like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy contented least. Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, haply I think on thee, and then my state, like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state with kings. And I think that my wish and prayer for all of you listeners is that you would find and enjoy friends that would, uh, would help you to enjoy your state like kings. Well, I hear the last call bell at the Three Bells. Lewis is one of Lewis's favorite pubs in uh, Headington with Joy Davidman. And so as we wrap up, we want to especially thank uh, you all for your friendship, for your shared interest with us and standing shoulder to shoulder with us, especially those who have uh, taken it upon themselves to be our Patreon supporters. We'd like to especially thank our top tier supporters, including Bud and Shane, John and Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique and Paul. We think of Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt and Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, David, and of course, Rowdy. Please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. 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 <laughs>